0: If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? This is Foundations, the radio ministry of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church, Sonora, California. We welcome you to our Sunday morning worship services under the leadership of Pastor David Bush. Stay tuned following today's program for more information about Oak Hill Presbyterian Church. Here now is today's message from Pastor Bush.
1: Well, we have uh, two passages that we'll look at today, um, both Galatians 1, 6 to 9, and then uh, 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. I'm going to just simply read the Galatians passage first in high hopes that we'll make it to our second point uh, in the sermon today. Uh, Galatians 1, 6 to 9. Paul writes to the churches in Galatia. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. Well, we're going to be moving on in this series on uh, tyranny unmasking tyranny and moving from that uh, civil uh, emphasis on how our civil governments might be tyrannical and now kind of looking a little bit closer to, uh, you know, home in terms of the church and how there are ecclesiastical leaders or church leaders that very much can be just as tyrannical as our civil leaders. And so I want to start today by, by looking into that a bit. And I'm going to start by, by adding to the previous case by um, our 14th point, which I want to defend as the religi- religious tyrants minimize doctrine. And here's how this tyranny plays out. Some religious rulers de-emphasize or minimize the importance of doctrine in an attempt to avoid dealing with difficult doctrinal issues. Uh, Sometimes it's simply to promote peace because uh, we know that as we defend our doctrine, sometimes we can be quite quarrelsome, quite offensive. Uh, It can be quite... uh, quite strong personalities that clash in debating points of opinion. And so sometimes the goal is just to simply keep peace in the church and to keep people from tearing at the fabric of the church or to promote growth in a church to get as many people as possible and to not make the issues a big deal for peace and growth in the church. And so even taking the best read on motives for why people might de-emphasize doctrine, I believe that that approach is patently unbiblical. It leaves people in their error. It promotes pluralism in the church. It keeps people from seeking and growing in truth. And it enables rulers to promote heresy in the church. And I want to remind you, I believe there is a general principle in this regard that Christ gave during his high priestly prayer, where Christ prayed that his people would be sanctified in truth, Matthew 17, 19. And Paul, in his ministry, is defending that very principle, that he wants people to grow in their wisdom and knowledge and the breadth of truth, promoting that throughout his ministry. And here, as he writes to the churches in Galatia, notice how he does this when he speaks about a different gospel, according to my translation in verse 6, that he's amazed that the Galatian churches are turning to a different gospel. And he says in verse 7, which is really not another gospel, now, if you're reading the King James Version, you're going to be particularly challenged because in the King James, you have the same word, another, uh, in verse 6 and in verse 7. So how do you distinguish? I'm amazed that you're changing to another, gosp- uh, you know, another gospel, which is really not another gospel. Um, what, how do you make sense of that? In the Greek, uh, much clearer, there are two radically different words. In verse 6, I'm amazed that you are turning to a different gospel. There the word heteros is used. And in verse 7, the Greek word alos translated um, another in verse 7. What's the difference between a heteros gospel and another alos gospel? The first word, heteros, uh, we know this from heterosexual is one who a relationship between different kinds of sexes two different natures so a different of another kind is how that uh, word is is employed Uh, in seven which is really not another allos another of the same kind we get our word alloy from that word where you have two metals that are brought together mixed up and you have one common alloy one medium. Uh, so Paul is saying, I'm amazed that you are leaving the one true gospel and you're going for a gospel of another nature, another kind, if you will. And that there are those, he says, that are trying to distort the gospel of Christ. And there he uses a word that, that uh, in Lo and Nida is to change to, or to turn into something, to cause to be different from, or to transform. That word's used in Acts 2.20, for instance, that the sun will be changed into darkness. So the light into its opposite nature To let your laughter be turned into crying in James 4.9. So you see this this word that is speaking of of, of an opposite nature. It's flipping it on its head. It's it's taking something that is true and making it false or uh, turning it into its opposite nature. Paul then warns the churches in Galatia in verse 8 that if we... Now, he is included in a group, right, the apostles. We, or an angel from heaven, should teach to preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. He is to be accursed. Literally, anathema, which is to be cursed to hell forever. So Paul's saying, if I were to come to you with a different gospel, you stay with the old gospel. If any of the apostles come to you and preach a different gospel, you stay with the old apostles. Old gospel. If God should send an angel from heaven, a messenger telling you a different gospel, you let me, you let the apostles, you let that angel be accursed to hell forever. It's always been mystifying to me how how Mormonism ever got off the starting blocks. Oh yeah, here's this angel Moroni that comes and gives me this message that all the churches in history are wrong, right? I've got a new message for you. (laughs) How do you reconcile that with this this message? But uh, Paul is saying, I gave you a gospel and I could possibly defect from the faith. And if I come to you teaching a different gospel... You know I've defected. You stay with the truth, and don't listen to me in the future. God got it right the first time. Notice how important the gospel that Paul taught really was in First Corinthians 15. One, he says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved if you hold fast to the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. His gospel was a saving gospel. And if somebody should should preach differently than the Apostle Paul, they'll come into you with a gospel of an opposite nature, a gospel that does not save. This is why he says, unless you believed in vain. And notice Paul doesn't just simply state the case, but he repeats exactly what he's saying in Galatians. Repeats it for emphasis a second time. As we have said before, I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what we received, he is to be accursed. Don't miss it. What I gave to you, I'm not changing. What I gave to you is life-saving. Don't compromise it. Don't surrender it. Don't let anybody bamboozle you. In John eight thirty one, Christ put it this way. If you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. The evidence there that there are some disciples that are not true disciples of Christ that there is a bondage that we're in apart from that truth. And so we need to anchor into his his truth. 1 Timothy 6, Paul writes to young Timothy these words, "'If anyone advocates a different doctrine "'and does not agree with sound words, "'those of our Lord Jesus Christ,' And with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arrive envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and depraved, excuse me, deprived of the truth." If they advocate a different doctrine, they're a proud group, and they do not understand anything. And then it gets into controversial issues that really are just a bunch of, much ado about nothing, as Shakespeare would put it, right? But it is not truth. Proverbs 14.12 and Proverbs 16.25, which we could usher in as two witnesses that confirm a matter, there is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now, I could add a host of other, other texts that would, would buttress up these few texts that clearly establish the point that doctrine is important, debating doctrine is important, Defending doctrine is important. That there is an objective doctrine that is to be debated is important. And that we ought not to compromise on that. And yet, we live in a day where modern Christians champion phrases like love trumps doctrine. I don't divide over doctrine, doctrine divides. I just want that simple gospel. I'm not one of those who goes after doctrine and the like. And you see the danger there. Now, there is a sense in which doctrine does divide. And it's either going to divide two parties that are, that are cemented in error, that are arguing two wrong points. Or you are going to divide between somebody who's standing in truth and somebody who's standing in error. Doctrine will divide, but the sense that we should not engage in doctrinal discussions because it's divisive to talk about doctrine is just simply wrong thinking. We must defend truth. Or sometimes we hear things like this, I just want to teach Jesus. I just want to know Jesus. I don't get into the doctrinal issues. It's about Jesus. I want to say, fair enough, what Jesus is it that you teach? Define your Jesus. Are you, are you defending the Jesus of Mormonism, where Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer? Or are you uh, defending the Jesus of the Arminian gospel, or the uh, Arian gospel, which has been championed by the Jehovah's Witness group, that he's just simply the first created being of Jehovah. And that it is through this first created being that all things come into, into being. That was the the heresy of Arius. Condemned as a heresy in the early church. Are you defending the Jesus of liberalism, that Jesus is just this great moral example of how we should live life? Or do you teach the biblical doctrine? That Jesus is the eternal son of God who took on human flesh, came into this world to live a perfect life and to be the savior of his people. What Jesus do you teach? Doctrine is unavoidable. I'm going to say that again in case you missed it. Doctrine is unavoidable. You may not be able to defend every doctrine you believe. Not every doctrine is as important as every other doctrine. Your doctrine may be a wide road that just is tolerant of all sorts of views, except, of course, the Calvinism. That, that's intolerable, right? <laughs> we tolerate all views. That is still a doctrine. It may be nondescript, it may be very generous. It may be very um, uncommitted to particular views, but it is a particular view about doctrine in general and is therefore a doctrine. So, doctrine is unavoidable. And one of the things that religious tyrants do is that they work to shield a people from examining the claims that they make, the doctrines they hold to. Um, If you question teaching of some religious leaders, you do not have biblical faith. That it would be sinful or erroneous to question some of the teachings. The threats of sin, if you would read any other literature than that which is published in Brooklyn, New York, for instance, or a church magisterium that alone has truth and that the laity does not have the ability to learn the truth from Scriptures, that is for the experts, so to speak. The implication is you're just too dumb to read the Word of God and get the truth yourself. Or worse would be that God is somehow hiding truth from babes, hiding truth from the common man. 1 John 4, 1 puts this imperative upon each one of us. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone into the world. There's your moral obligation to test the spirits. And yet... We have many religious leaders today to say that if you challenge what I'm teaching you, you have no faith. You are sinning. You somehow are being unbiblical. If you're in such a church that forbids, bars, or restricts, or discourages you from testing the doctrines that are taught from the pulpit, I want to suggest that you are sitting under a tyrant. And the reason being is that truth will never, never be threatened by error. If an individual, I mean, I have never said don't examine what I'm saying by the Word of God or even by other schools of thought. I welcome hearty debate about what I preach from this pulpit. Because the one thing I know Actually, I know a couple of things. I know, one, I'm not a perfect man. I know my doctrine is not perfect. The second thing I know is that if truth is out there and I do not have it, debate will potentially get me to that truth. And the second thing I know is that if I am teaching truth, that the error that is brought in is not going to trump truth. And so I'm not threatened by challenges, it's when somebody is trying to propagate error or heresy that the truth is a threat to that. And so it's a way of hiding truth from the people. And so I want to guard against the quarrelsome debating of doctrine, the antagonistic, um, mean-spirited, warlike mentality over debates but a charitable discussion across the table with differing views is something that I welcome. And I believe every man of God, every woman of God ought to be be able to engage in that kind of discussion. But religious tyrants, of course, hate that kind of interaction. They will teach oftentimes a wide road of toleration that leads to destruction, as Christ warned us. So debate, argumentation, is different than quarreling. We welcome debate, we welcome argumentation, but quarreling has no place. Give an answer for the hope that lies within you, yet with gentleness and with respect. The second point I want to show is that religious tyrants often prey on women. Here was another instruction from the Apostle Paul to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, but realize this, that in the last days difficult times will come. And I will just skip down to verse 5 about these men. You can read the intermittent verses. Holding to a form of godliness, notice it's not true godliness, but holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses. Now, this is, this is a sad thing. Um, heartbreaking news in the recent uh, weeks about uh, Ravi Zacharias and his ministry, very effective minister, compelling arguments, well-studied, rich history, A man who made a nice living in terms of going around and preaching and teaching. A man I respect, you know, his ministry greatly. But uh, sadly, a dark side to his ministry. Exploiting women. And uh, it is a heartbreaking bit of news. It happens. Religious leaders prey on women, weak women. And the reason, I believe, is that often women are very, very vulnerable. One reason would be that in general God has made women a weaker, the weaker of the sexes uh, for a particular reason that's not insulting. Uh, Paul refers to weak women in verse 6 of the text, and First Peter also speaks of the woman being the uh, weaker vessel in verse uh, 7 of chapter 3 of his um, first letter. But it was also so that men would rise up to the, to the design of mankind to be the protector of the woman, to be in a sense in the image bearing of God to display that protection and provision aspect of God to his covenant people, to be a head of a bride that would come into play. And so God has designed the particular... Sexes for a particular display to the world of the relationship of God to His Church, and so He has made one sex to be superior in strength. A second reason is that men, or second women, why second reason why women are oftentimes very vulnerable is that men sinfully engage in that role. That, that, that as sinners, we don't always demonstrate godly husbandry to women. Our headship is perverted. It becomes tyranny in our homes. Another subject. Maybe we'll have a three-part series. <laughs> Mike, you're going to be my prime example. No, i just, <laughs> just kidding. Um, but we, we tend to misjudge how to lead and protect and provide for women, uh, categorically, I think, as as a male gender. And what happens is women are often left without that coverage. They are led to engage in sinful attempts to overcome that, um, leaving them vulnerable, and religious rulers often take advantage of that. It's a, sad, it's a sad fact, but uh, how many relationships have, have been destroyed? How many marriages have been destroyed by uh, tyrannical religious leaders preying on weak women? I would say there's much that I want to say, far too much, to get in in the time that I, I had hoped to um, lay down here. But let me just quickly give you what I'm getting at, particularly the, the, the thing that is perhaps the most notoriously wicked mechanism in the broad church would be the confessional of Rome uh, for this abuse. Um, the confession the confessional cannot be defended biblically. it is certainly confession is biblical the confessional is not. Uh, Lorraine Bettner in his book Roman Catholicism, uh, demonstrates how unbiblical the confessional is, and he after proves that point quite compellingly. He says this, if the confessional has no sanction in Scripture, how did it come to be established in the church? Let Dr. Woods answer. And he says, because its establishment was greatly to the interest of the hierarchy. The confessional enormously increased the power of the Pope and the clergy. The priests came to know the secrets of men, from the emperor down to the humblest peasant, and all classes of society were placed under the power of their religious leaders, whom they did not dare to disobey or offend. Not only were their sins and scandals of each individual's life and that of families laid bare, but all the intrigues of the state, the political schemes of the rulers of Europe were in the possession of the confessor, who would use his knowledge for the advancement of the church and to help a political party in which he was interested. What greater intellectual and moral bondage for human beings could be imagined, or what more dangerous power could be possessed than that, than the Roman confessional? And, uh, Father Chiniqui wrote a famous book called The Priest, the Woman, and the Confessional, where after 25 years in the Roman church in Canada, he writes these words, With a blush on my face and regret in my heart, I confess before God and men that I have been through the confessional plunged for 25 years in that bottomless sea of iniquity in which blind priests of Rome have to swim day and night. I had to learn by heart the infamous questions which the Church of Rome forces every priest to learn. I had to put these impure, immoral questions to women and girls who were confessing their sins to me. Those questions and the answers they incite are so debasing that only a man who has lost every sense of shame could put them to any woman. Yes, I was bound in conscience to put into the ears, the mind, the imagination, the memory, the heart, the soul of women and girls, questions of such a nature, the direct and immediate tendency of which is to fill the minds and hearts of both priests and penitents with thoughts and temptations of such a degrading nature that I do not know any words adequate to express them pagan antiquity has never seen an institution more polluting than the confessional. I was degraded and polluted by the confessional just as the priests of Rome are. It has required the whole blood of the great victim who died on Calvary for sinners to purify me. One can only imagine the kinds of conversations that take place between a celibate priest and a a woman who's engaged in sexual sin or temptation. And what has come from that is just one degree of the abuse and the tyranny that comes through that, that evil invention. I could go on, but I I think you get the point, and we're way over time. There's one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that we have free access to him. And as we are to confess sin one to another, which is absolutely true, I believe if the confessional were in any way employed, the priest is under obligation to confess his sins to the penitent who is confessing theirs. And even then, only that which is directly related to the two of them, between them. And so tyranny certainly does exist in the church. And may God give us the grace to avoid that here. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray for your mercies, knowing that... um, with uh, every delegated power, there comes the temptation for sin. And so we pray that you would uh, preserve us, that our minds would be fixed upon Christ, the, the chief example of um, righteous, godly leadership. So give us the grace to, to model him in all that we do, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks for listening to Foundations, the radio ministry of Oak Hill Presbyterian Church. Our church is located at the corner of Mono Way, Highway 108 and Peaceful Valley Road in East Sonora, California. The church with the crosses. Our weekly worship service begins at 9.45 a.m. We would be delighted to have you join us as we worship Almighty God, explore His Word, and fellowship in Christian love. If you would like a copy of today's message or more information about Oak Hill, please visit our website at oakhillopc.org.